So last week it was finished, and this week it really will be finished. We are the last in this series of the seven sayings of Jesus. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this really good news that we have been thinking about over the last seven weeks. Good news because what Jesus has done for us has meant that we are rescued from sin and death and hell, that we are welcomed into a new family, and that we are given eternal life. It is good news, but yet it came at such a great cost. And we have seen the Lord Jesus suffer so terribly there on the cross. We thank you that he did it for us. And we pray this morning as we look at this last saying, that Father, again, as we look at the, the horrors and the terror and the, the anguish and the judgment of the cross, that we will see it as good news because Jesus has done it for us. Amen. If you've been watching the news or reading the news this week, then you will know of the horrors that we have seen and witnessed due to the chemical attacks in Syria. Chemical weapons used on poor, innocent people. People suffering incredible injuries, and many, of course, have died. Suffering at the hands of what many believe is the Syrian government. You'll also be aware of the frustrations that have been politically with people disagreeing about who is responsible and what action should be taken. We live in a world where we long to see justice. We hate it when innocent people suffer and the guilty seem to get away with it. Sometimes we hear stories and families of victims of murder, for example, are outraged by the leniency of penalty or the reduced sentence that's given to the one who's convicted. Innocent people suffering at the guilty, what happens to them? Well, this idea of the innocent suffering, the idea of an innocent man suffering at the hands of a vengeful God, has been one objection raised by many to the cross. On the one hand, we could say, or we can say, that at a human level, a terrible injustice is happening at the cross. There, Jesus is suffering, but yet he's innocent. If you read Luke's account, particularly, we see time again that this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong, and yet he's dying. An innocent man dying in the hands of powerful people in Jerusalem. And yet, on the other hand, we've also seen in recent weeks that Jesus is dying a death that he didn't deserve, but yet he's dying a death, bearing the judgment of God, taking on the sins of the world. Jesus, who didn't sin, is being punished for the sins that we have done. Many have asked the question in in defense of innocent Jesus, how can he pay for the sins that we have committed? How can sinful people be forgiven? Isn't it immoral? It's unjust for God to forgive immoral people, many people say. Others have questioned God in this instance and his judgment saying the idea of Jesus bearing the punishment for sin is like cosmic child abuse. Angry God in heaven unleashing his petty rage on poor innocent Jesus 
just so that he can feel better. An unwilling, innocent man in the hands of a bloodthirsty God. But is that what is going on at the cross? When Jesus says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, is he reluctantly, slavishly, fearfully, and in weakness, giving in to this big bully in the sky? Maybe you've heard those objections. Maybe you have questions about God's judgment yourself. Maybe the idea of the wrath of God worries you. How do we explain the wrath of God's judgment with the innocence of this man, Jesus? Well, as we unpack these verses in Luke's gospel, as we read the account again, and we hear Jesus say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I pray that we will see that as Jesus goes to the cross, it is just. It is appropriate punishment for sin given by a just, righteous, holy God. We'll see that Jesus sacrificially, confidently, perfectly, willingly, and even joyfully says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I hope this morning we'll see the danger of rejecting the cross of Christ. But above all, I hope that we will see that Jesus taking the punishment of sin for us is good news, is the best news for those who believe. So what was it? What was it that was going through Jesus' mind as he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? What was his attitude? What was his motives? I think what would really help us as we answer those questions before we go any further, is to know that the words that Jesus says on the cross here are words that we find in Psalm 31. In Psalm 31, a psalm of David, he prays to God. In the first verses, he refers to God as his refuge. God is his rock, his fortress. God is the one, he is the place that David runs to for safety and for security. It's in God that David finds deliverance. And in verse 5, David says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. So if God is a safe place of refuge, and yet Jesus speaking the words he does, bearing the wrath of God, there must be something different going on. Something different from cosmic child abuse. So I think, firstly, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit sacrificially. Did you know that if you cycle down Maudlin Road, which is a one-way street going up, and you are caught by the police, then you should pay a fine of 50 pounds. Apparently, the rules of the highway code are for cyclists and not just drivers, as I found out a few months ago when stopped by the police outside the church building. I committed the crime. I should have paid the fine. But thankfully, the police officer modeled this wonderful thing called mercy and let me off. Rules. Rules are there 
for good reasons. It's a nuisance when people cycle down Malden Road the wrong way. We have rules in all sorts of areas of life, don't we? Pretty much in every area for a reason, for a purpose. It keeps control and order and helps us live life to the best. They have this inbuilt sense of justice too. When rules are broken, there must be consequences. And so if God, who is the ultimate, eternal, perfect creator, then we are accountable to him for how we live our lives. And so if we have lived our lives in rebellion and disobedience to him, then surely there should be just, just punishment, a fine that we should pay. pay. The Bible tells us that the just punishment for sin is death. It's physical death, and we see that in our own bodies as we grow older, as we get ill, we, our bodies fail, and one day we all will die. It's spiritual death as we are born into the broken relationship with God. And it is eternal death because no one who has sin can be in the presence of a holy God. Sin has to be banished from him forever. The horrible realities of this seriousness of sin is death and all that goes with that. But the good news, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has done something about it. He hasn't let us off the hook like the policeman, but he himself has paid the penalty. But have you ever thought that you and Jesus didn't have to do that? We don't deserve to be rescued. <laughs> but yet he does it for us. The fact that God saves anyone should be the best news ever because the bad news is that if he hadn't, then all of us would be spending eternity away, separated from him because none of us were able, are able to pay the price for our sin. It would be like if you were cycling your bike through Buckingham Palace gates and you decided to ride around the gardens I'm sure you would be fined. I don't know how much it would be, but I'm sure it would be a lot. Why? Because it's the queen's residence. It's her gardens. It's not just any old garden. And so sin against an eternal holy God is eternal death. And of course, God knows this. And God is just and he will punish sin. But yet God doesn't want to have to punish us. He is love. He doesn't want anyone to perish, the Bible tells us. But what can he do? What other way is there for human beings to escape his wrath? Well, as we see in our account today in Luke's gospel, as Jesus dies on the cross, at that moment, the way out is made because Jesus dies for us. And John tells us in his first letter, this is what love is. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for sin. The sacrifice to make us right before God. And so when Jesus says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He does it sacrificially, knowing that his sacrifice, bearing the judgment of God for the sin of the world. But what about this judgment? Is it petty revenge? Is it an out-of-control anger of God? 
or is it a righteous response to the evil of sin? Is it a response that Jesus confidently accepts? When Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, secondly, he says it with confidence, knowing that God's judgment for sin is right. What does it look like? Well, Luke gives us a shorter account of the actual death of Jesus. We don't get the words of anguish that we do in the other Gospels. My God, my God, where have you forsaken me? Jesus suffers physically and spiritually, forsaken by God. But we do hear, we read of this physical, visible demonstration of God's anger. This darkness, this curtain that is torn. Look down at verse 44. Now it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his laugh. It was noon. And darkness came over all the land. Have you ever seen it dark outside at noon? Is not midday the time when the sun is at its highest and brightest? Especially in, in Jerusalem, it would have been even higher and brighter in the sky. But it's dark. Now, by darkness, he doesn't mean that it's this lots of clouds covering the sky, like on a, on a day when we know it's about to rain because it's thick and gray. It's not real darkness. And it's not an eclipse of the sun either, as some people have wondered. The crucifixion happens at the Jewish Passover, and the Jewish Passover happens when there's a full moon. So the moon's nowhere near the sun. Darkness surrounds the cross for three hours, from midday to three in the afternoon. Now this is a different darkness. This is a darkness sent from God. Luke simply says the sun stopped shining. Why darkness? Darkness is the biblical symbol used for, for judgment. The Bible uses darkness to describe sin and evil and Satan. Jesus on the cross indeed is the moment when he's been punished for sin, but it's also the time when the spiritual powers of darkness think that they are having their way too. Think back to when Jesus is in the garden and just before he's arrested, he says to those who come, every day I was with you in the temple courts, but you did not lay a hand on me. And then he says, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. It would have been weird, a strange phenomenon. People would have been afraid. Judgment, God's judgment, yes, of sin, on evil, on Satan, death and the people watching can see darkness matthew tells us there was an earthquake the curtain in the temple was torn in two now it's important for us to to know that the wrath of god is not his out of control highly emotional lashing out against sin the wrath of god is as one commentator says is his settled opposition to evil it's his state of righteous indignation towards sin. 
God's wrath is shown by punishing sin with death. Father turns from Jesus, breaking off his favor with him as Jesus is given over to death, the punishment for sin. God hates sin. He can't associate with it. And he will see that all sin and all evil is dealt with. But God is not some cruel, vindictive man in the sky. He's not a big giant squashing little ants. When you read the Bible in the Old Testament, yes, absolutely, we see a God who is angry and causes judgment to happen. But yet what we often forget is that God never brings judgment without warning. He always gives people a chance to repent. When God judges people, he lets them know that he is going to do it. Think of Adam and Eve right at the beginning in the garden. He said, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will die. And so they did, and they were banished from the garden. God gave Noah a hundred years to convince the people around him that he was going to flood the world. But they didn't listen. He warned Israel time and time again, if you sin, there will be consequences. Sin is serious. God takes it serious. But in his mercy, he offers repentance. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children to their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. These are the words of Moses when he saw the glory of God passing by up on the mountain. A God who is full of compassion and love, slowness to anger, anger, but yet a God who is just. God's anger is not like our anger. When my boys don't listen to me and don't do things I ask, I get angry. I want them to obey me. When someone drives their car in, in a reckless way right in my path, I shout, what are you doing? Get out the way. When we get angry for various reasons, our anger is always tainted with sin, with selfishness, with our personal want for revenge in some way. We're often angry with sin that we commit ourselves. And often our reaction is not appropriate to the level of offense. But yet with God, as J.I. Parker says in his great book, Knowing God, his wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble. A thing like human anger is. Instead, it is a right and necessary reaction to the objective moral evil. God is a God of love, perfect love. And God's wrath is his love in action against sin. You thought about that, that God's wrath comes from his love. There was a man called George Tyson, and a few years ago, he, being 61 years old, was walking down the road when a 
car came the other way. The car was fast, didn't see him, and knocked him dead. There was no chance that he was going to survive. But also walking with that man was his son, his 32-year-old disabled son, who was also in the line of the car. But before the car hit the two men, the father pushed his son out of the way and took the full force of the crash himself. Imagine the judgment of God being like the impact of that car. It's fatal. There's no hope of surviving. But with Jesus dying on the cross, it is like he is pushing us out of the way so that he takes the wrath himself. And Jesus did it confidently because it was just. But not only confidently, but thirdly, he did it perfectly. Jesus was innocent. He was without sin. The Bible tells us that Jesus had to be innocent. He had to be righteous. The perfect sacrifice was needed to pay the price for sin. But is it fair? Is it fair that he who did not sin should die for us who do sin? That's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus was perfect and he, he did it for us. The innocence of Jesus, we've thought about it quite a lot in the last few weeks. But we see it again here in Luke's gospel by those who are witnessing the cross. Verse 47, the testimony of the soldier. Surely this was a righteous man. As he sees all that happened, as he hears what Jesus says, this can't be right. A centurion, a lead soldier who would have witnessed hundreds of crucifixions. He knew there was something different about this one. Pontius Pilate, King Herod, they both acknowledged that Jesus was, was, had done nothing wrong. At his trial, Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and said, you brought me this man, one who is inciting people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charge. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing deserving death. The criminal on the cross said, this man's done nothing wrong. And then finally, all those who'd gathered to witness the event, Jesus died and it's like this, this chill in the air. They saw what took place, verse 48, and they beat their breasts and went away. To beat your chest was to acknowledge guilt, grief, knowing that really what has happened was not right. This man was innocent. But Jesus' innocent, innocence, it's not like he was a rabbit caught in the headlights, but he was the willing and obedient son of God, carrying out God's plan, the plan that they'd had before the world began. So thoughtfully, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he said it willingly. The cross had always been the plan. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in all eternity planned that this was how they would rescue people from sin. Peter tells us in his first letter that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Remember Jesus' words from last week? It is finished. We heard it in the kids' talk. And we asked ourselves, what is it that he has finished? What is the work? What is the work of rescuing people for eternal life? It was to glorify God, which he did openly and willingly, obeying his Father. It was the reason that he came. And Jesus knew it all his life. He knew that that was the end that he would have to face. He predicted it. He predicted it in Luke's gospel. The Son of Man will suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. But on the third day, be raised to life. And so we see Jesus willingly going to the cross. But not only going to the cross, but also staying on the cross. Do you remember all those people who were saying, come on, if you're the son of God, save yourself, son us. Come down from the cross. And it was at that moment that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. He willingly gave up his life because he knew that through his death, sin would be paid for. He wasn't forced there. He wasn't trapped there. He laid down his life willingly. Jesus says himself, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit willingly, freely, for the sake of sinful people. Jesus died sacrificially, confidently, perfectly, willingly. And then I think finally, he did it joyfully. Joyfully? Really? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Hebrews 12. Jesus knew that the moment that he, he died, that he would be in paradise. He would be with his father, he and the criminal next to him. Part of the joy for Jesus was knowing that he would soon be standing before his father. But he wouldn't be standing before his father like a naughty schoolchild before the head teacher. But he would be standing confidently, knowing that his perfect sacrifice was enough. He would receive full approval from his father. The wrath of God was satisfied. We're going to sing a hymn at the end called In Christ Alone. And there's that line, the wrath of God was satisfied. But there are some Christians who wrote an email to Keith Getty saying, can we change the words of your song? We don't like that line. Can we change it to the love of God is glorified instead? And Keith rightly said no. The wrath of God was satisfied and actually in the wrath of god being satisfied the love of god is glorified 
Because if it's not, then we still stand condemned and are without hope. But there is hope. There's hope because, as we read today, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. The temple, that place of worship where the Jews would go, had become a curse to them. They had been abusing its purposes. They offered their sacrifices, yes, but their hearts, as Jesus said, were far from him. Jesus had just days earlier cleared out the temple. But because of the cross, the physical temple there in Jerusalem was no longer necessary. The place to come to God was no longer at the temple through the priest, but it was open freely for all of us to come. Free access. The old covenant was no more. A new way was made possible. The curtain, a sign of judgment, but also a sign of access. And so Jesus confidently gives his life into God's hands. And friends, you know what? You and I can give our lives into God's hands confidently too. Think back to Psalm 35. Did you know that the Jews used this psalm in their evening prayers? They recite it and just before they go to bed, knowing that they are commending themselves into God's care as they go off to sleep. Because it's a lovely psalm in that sense. Committing our lives as we go off to bed at night. On the cross, Jesus is dying a horrific death. But he knows what is awaiting him. In one sense, it is like he is falling asleep only to wake up in heaven. And so imagine, imagine that you are on your deathbed. Imagine that you know in the next few moments you are going to pass from life to death. In the midst of whatever turmoil and suffering, whatever fear of death we will have, will we be able to say, because of Jesus, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Where will your confidence lie? Where will your assurance be on the day of judgment? How will you stand before a holy God? Richard Dawkins and other atheists like him have, have said, if there is a God and I do get to meet him one day, then he's going to have a lot of hard questions to answer. Questions about why he hasn't made himself more obvious, and certainly questions about why is there so much evil and suffering in the world. But God will not be on, in the dock on that last day. Although evil and suffering is a result of what God would say would happen if Adam and Eve sinned, it was Adam and Eve who sinned, and we all like them. Instead of God being in the dock, he will want to know from us what we have done with his son. And if we've turned away from Christ, if we've rejected his free offer of eternal life, freedom from that evil and suffering we are so worried about, 
He's going to want to know why. Because he's done something about the evil and suffering. He came himself to suffer for us and to take away suffering and evil and sin and death for us forever. And all we need to do is trust in him. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he said it sacrificially and confidently and perfectly and willingly and joyfully for us. So trust in the cross of Christ. Stephen, one of the early Christians, a man who was stoned to death in Acts 7, as well as following Jesus and asking God to forgive his murderers, Luke also tells us this. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, receive my spirit. How will you stand on the final day? How you will stand will depend on your response to the cross. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God, a perfect God. You are a holy God who hates sin. You are a just God who punishes sin. You are a gracious and merciful God who has made a way that we can escape that punishment. We thank you so much for who you are. You are not a cruel, vindictive, nasty bully. But you are one who stepped down yourself, who took on humanity, who died on the cross willingly so that we could be free. And Father, this morning I pray that we would see the cross in all its horror as such good news because it rescues us from hell. Father, one day we all will die and we all will stand in your presence. And Father, I pray that all of us, trusting in Christ, will be able to say, into your hands I commit my spirit because of what Jesus has done. We look forward to that day when we will spend forever with you and we have no fear because of Jesus. Amen.